0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a little bit spooky. (laughs) As a former ghost tour guide and card carrying goth, you didn't know that we had cards, did you? I love all kinds of occult history, from alchemy and magic to spiritualism and tarot cards. And what's not to love? Tarot is more popular than ever, with sales of tarot decks doubling between 2016 and 2021, then tripling over the course of the pandemic. It makes sense that when facing an uncertain future, people turn to divination to make sense of their circumstances and surroundings. Plus, tarot art is undeniably cool. That's what we're talking about today. My guest is actress and historical fiction author Susan Wands, author of Magician and Fool, a speculative historical fiction novel about tarot artist Pamela Coleman Smith. We'll be talking about Pamela's life today, particularly how she came to illustrate the iconic Rider-Waite-Smith deck and her involvement with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. It's an interesting conversation, and it's a little different from what we usually do, but I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. In terms of content warnings, we do briefly mention drug use and historical allegations of sexual assault, but we don't dwell on it and we don't go into detail. Still, if you need to skip it, that's absolutely fine. With all that out of the way, here's my conversation with Susan Wands. (music) My guest today is Susan Wands, and I am so excited for this conversation. Her new book, Magician and Fool, has been my uh, go-to chill-out book for the last couple of weeks here. I'm reading it very, very slowly because I want to make it last. So Susan, I'm so glad to have you. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Jessica. I'm such a fan of Dirty Sexy History. I've learned so much listening to these podcasts, and the one lesson I keep coming back with, there's always been sex, there will always be sex, sex is always here.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's probably our unofficial tagline. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad you're enjoying it. Gosh, I have so many questions today. So we should just jump right in. So your new book, Magician and Fool, it is a historical novel telling the story of tarot artist Pamela Coleman Smith and the Golden Dawn. Nowadays, Pamela's art is everywhere and people would instantly recognize it whether they realize it or not. So let's start with Pamela. What can you tell us about her?
1: Well, Pamela was born in 1878 in England to American parents, and both her parents were very artistic. Uh, when Pamela was growing up, it was thought she had second sight. You know, she saw fairies, she she felt things, so they knew they had a very special child on their hands. They lived in London for a while, then they moved to Manchester. They even spent some time in Jamaica, where she learned how to recite these Jamaican folk tales. She eventually ended up when she was 15 years old back in New York, where her family was from. Her grandfather was the uh, mayor of Brooklyn at one point. Oh, my goodness. So had, yeah. So she had a lot of family there. She went to art school in Brooklyn called Pratt, and she began to learn how to draw almost in a Japanese manner from uh, Dow, the man who led the program there. Both her parents died before she was 20. So she ended up pitching her star to the Lyceum Theater's touring company with Graham Stoker, who wrote Dracula, uh, Ellen Terry, the leading lady, and Henry Irving, who was the actor-manager. So she found herself back in London in the 1890s, and this was a time of great change. And so she worked at the Lyceum Theater for a while. She was so prolific. She painted, she sculpted, she designed sets, she designed costumes, she just threw everything at the wall. But Bram Stoker could tell that she wasn't really getting a chance to do what she could do with the Lyceum Theater. I mean, she was basically walking on and designing costumes with Edie Craig, but she wasn't living up to her potential. And I think he felt guilty. You know, She had come along with him to be part of the Lyceum Theater and they didn't know what to make of her. Uh, She was short, she was loud, she was unusual. And so at that time, she was just seen as other. And so Bram Stoker introduced her to this upcoming group called the Golden Dawn. It was sort of a new academy to study magic and spiritual hoo-ha. And so uh, Pamela got her feet wet by taking some of these courses. They studied Kabbalah and astrology. And, you know, Pamela's strong point was not school. She did not graduate from Pratt. So she did not graduate from less than two courses with the Golden Dawn. But she studied a lot. But from there, the Golden Dawn recognized she was tremendously gifted as not only a psychic, but an artist. And um, Waite, one of the people with the Golden Dawn, decided he would start up this deck of Tarot cards and he would design them with Pamela. They became the Rider Waite Tarot deck, which has sold 100 million copies in 20 countries. Um, After 100 years of the deck being out there, it was finally titled uh, the Smith Waite deck. So Pamela's name was finally on the deck of cards and they're probably the most recognizable tarot deck that you will see in today's market.
0: Oh yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned that. I have a lot of questions about that. But first, let's talk a little bit more about the Golden Dawn. So, the Golden Dawn is one of those groups that I think everyone has heard of, but not everybody is super familiar with who they actually were. So, how did the Golden Dawn form? This is such a great question, Jessica, because you know,
1: at that time in England, men's club were just starting to open up to people who weren't aristocrats or landed gentry. They were Freemasons and Masonites and you know all these little privileged clubs, but they were all men. Until about, I think it was 1883, the second female physician in England, her name was Anna Kingsford. Now she had to go to Paris to become a doctor because she couldn't do it in London. But anyway, she came back to London. She was the second doctor. She became the president of the London Lodge of the Theosophical Society. And this is huge because it was one of the big spiritual movement type get togethers. And two of the people who attended that lodge were, uh, Dr. William Westcott and Samuel Mathers, and they became friends with her. And they said, wow, women in a club. This is kind of weird and freaky. Let's, let's do our own thing. So they started their own Hermetic Order in 1884 with them. So, okay, so she's sort of working it out with these two other guys. And then eventually, the third group was started in 1888, and that was the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And the reason it's called Hermetic is because they were going to start studying the magic of Hermes. So this was uh, a very exciting time because they were going to study um, how the Kabbalistic Tree of Life Could possibly lead to magical spells Um, they were going to study astral planes they were going to try to commune with gods and spirits it was a very exciting time to start this group but because they had worked with anna kingsford they decided that they would let women join so this was huge so one of the richest women in england uh, annie horniman she got her fortune from the horniman tea came on with all her money they used to call her money bags so she helped with the rents with the Golden Dawn headquarters. And then there was also Florence Farr, who was George Bernard Shaw's modern woman. Now, both of these women were so instrumental in the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn because they helped set the curriculum of what the studies would be. There were, let's see, there were three orders and 10 graduations of the degrees of study. And um, so Pamela came on to study with the Golden Dawn because of Graham. And she was only in the first outer order, um, which was studying spiritual philosophy. I think when she got to the math course about astrology, she went, I'm done seeing. Nope, not having it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that was, it was very popular. This, uh, for a while, it was popular. Of course, uh, the Golden Dawn was founded under somewhat fraudulent circumstances. Uh, What happened was the three men who started it, who had known Anna... It was uh, Dr. Woodman, uh, Dr. Wincott, and Samuel Mathers told everybody that the reason they could start this Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was because they were contacted by a German countess named Anna Springle, and she had the rights to the papers from Count of who had all these magical formulas. Now, the whole idea was that these three Golden Dawn chiefs went, you know, we don't think we want to share these magical formulas with just anybody so what we're going to do is we're going to set up these different tiers of studies and if you get to the third study order maybe you can study the magical formulas so they spun out this huge story that they inherited this chapter of magical teaching from this german countess and that lie would end up being the golden dawn's undoing
0: oh my goodness well, if, uh, if you start out on a lie, I mean, it makes sense if you end on one. So they had all these tiers. Uh, how do you move up through the ranks? Well, that's interesting. It's I think the
1: first level of the orders is the initiation. And that's what everybody would study. It was just general philosophy. So you'd study general philosophy and there'd be some class for that. The next one was evocation. And in evocation, you're actually contacting spirits and outside forces and you're reaching out for energies focused on a purpose. Um, It's either an inner or outer nature invocation, but the strongest one and the one they all wanted to do was invocation. And that's inviting a God or gods to come into your presence and that you partake as part of their presence. So they kept thinking there was this spiritual astral plane where you could communicate with, Jupiter and Thoth and Hermes and Osiris and Isis. I mean, it was a dog's lunch of all sorts of gods from across the world, you know, Greek, Egyptian, Roman. Uh, It was just totally uh, a huge ability that you could worship and communicate with all these different gods, but only to a few select secret chiefs. So could you take enough classes to get up to the secret chief level? It, It became a very political Uh, Situation. But then something started happening in about 1885 when Oscar Wilde was arrested for gross indecency. Now, some of the doctors that were setting the agenda there were lifelong bachelors and they loved having this club. They weren't crazy about having the women around, but they liked the money. But they got a little nervous about these clubs. And one doctor in particular, Dr. Westcott, was informed that if he wanted to continue to be a coroner, he better quit the Golden Dawn. And he was a big mucky muck at that point. And he also knew about the Anna Springle, you know, uh, German Countess story. So he left. And the person they put in charge was Samuel Mathers, who was a polygot who spoke all these languages, but he was not a great people leader. So the person who stepped in to lead the Golden Dawn after that was Florence Farr. Now, can you imagine, here is a woman in London, leading a magical society so there was a lot of angst about that and the person who had the biggest problem with it was alistair crowley
0: okay so the victorian period saw a huge rise in spiritualism you know interest in magic and all that kind of stuff and the occult trying to conjure things as you mentioned so what was it about this this time and place that kind of drove this interest what was going on around them that allowed it to happen
1: i think it was the mashup of science and spirituality Mm -hmm. there was i mean it seemed at the time that science could do anything science had made the industrial revolution you had steam powered engines you had phones coming in you had electricity and so it seemed that science could be magic and magic could be science and so there was this huge interest in what can we do to conjure i'd like to be a god i'd like to astral travel i'd like to take some of this personal woo woo and make it happen and so people got very excited, and also there was a new wave of thinking about spirituality in terms of being able to reach out to people who had passed if you could actually talk to a god from Egypt, even though you'd never been there and you didn't understand their religion or their language, but you could still talk to a god from Egypt. so I think that that was one of the biggest draws about magic in the 1800s is mm-hmm. the, especially the 1880s it was a mashup of what is possible with science, and what is possible with magic.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. And I know you mentioned that the Golden Dawn was unusual for this kind of group at this time period because they admitted women. And as you said, at one point, they were actually run by a woman. And that's incredible. So how did they view women? What was their role in, in this group? Well, in the
1: very beginning, of course, they they were doing a lot of dusting and furnishing the headquarters with nice furniture from their parents' house. <laughs> Eventually, it seemed they they let them set the agenda about what was happening. Now, there's been some speculation that in the studies, was there a course about getting energy or getting magical spells through sex? There's been some discussion that those were top secret, third level commune with a God type rituals that were not to ever be discussed. But then we had Aleister Crowley come in and mm-hmm. he was very ambitious. He was he was passing a course a month. Uh, Pamela barely barely passed one course, but he was determined. He wanted to get level three, commune with a god, you know, be a spokesperson for the whole astral plane. But what he also brought in to the Golden Dawn were his ideas about sex magic, right? And uh, that was not that was not really accepted, especially by Annie Horniman, the wealthy um, heiress, because she was somewhat of a prude. And she started to hear stories that Alistair was sleeping with married women in the Golden Dawn. And then there was another charge that Florence Farr leveled at him, which was perversion. So was this fear from the Oscar Wilde situation that Oscar was a template that Alistair Crowley was having homosexual relationships as well as relationships with women? Um, But he definitely was cutting a swath through the female population of the Golden Dawn. And that's why he was kicked out.
0: Wow. So Alistair Crowley these days, I mean, I think it's probably safe to say he's the most infamous member of the Golden Dawn. He's the one everybody's heard of. So what is his story? How did he get kicked out exactly?
1: <laughs> well, I think the biggest problem was that he had a big fight with W. William Butler Yates. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yates and Alistair had these magical duels. One supposedly happened at the Watkins bookstore where uh, they made books disappear and reappear. The other battle that they had was where Alistair appeared with a Scottish mask on and he charged into the Golden Dawn headquarters and he was going to steal their their playbook as it were. And they had used magical spells of a horse caught on fire and women were screaming in the streets. So it was, how, how much of this is true, I don't know. But supposedly these two magical duels happened because Alistair was determined that he wanted to have his fundamental views on sex magic brought into the Golden Dawn because he believed sex magic would unlock the mysteries of the universe. Mm -hmm. And he spent the second half of his life uh, studying it. Um, He wrote, I think it was in 1909, he wrote a pamphlet called The Equinox, sort of setting out his ideas about sex magic. Um, There were lots of rituals. It was lots and lots of sex. Um, it's very controversial because it is thought at some points he was endorsing having sex with children. Um, he had a lot of women that he basically used and threw to the side, including including his wife, who helped him channel his first god, Anwas, in Egypt. But he founded a religion called Thelma. I'm going to mispronounce this. But like Thelma. He, Thelma. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thelma. And so he was very devoted to this idea that he was going to be a conduit from the gods with this religion. And he was going to bring sex out of the Victorian age and into the age where it was done as a celebration of power and magic. So we can see how unpopular it was. So
0: there are so many different members of the Golden Dawn, and I suppose they all had different ideas about sex. How did they view sex and sexuality generally? Do you have any stories you can tell us? Well, I think the biggest downfall of
1: the Golden Dawn about sex is that the men pretty much preyed upon the women. Uh, Mm. Florence Farr was pretty independent, but the biggest stumbling block was that while Mathers was in Paris, this woman showed up and said, hi, I'm Arnold Springle, the German countess who taught you the papers. And he went, oh, yeah, you are. So in exchange for her sort of blackmailing him, he let her look at the Book of Magic. She came over to England with her son, and she set up her own golden dawn, telling everybody she ran adverts in the newspaper saying, "I, I come to England with a prince, the best man in the world. All you ladies should come and meet him. And so basically, they drew all these young women to meet the prince where he had them live in the house with his mother, and they raped them, stole their money, and bankrupted them. And this went on for quite a while. Until the young women, I think it was the 16 year old went to the police, Daisy, I think her name was, and the police moved in and went, oh, my God, these two con artists are are basically just preying on people thinking it's like a match game. Mm -hmm. So they were arrested. They were tried. Um, It turned out it wasn't mother and son. It was husband and wife. Oh, my God. Yeah. So creepy. And she ended up spending seven years in prison, and he spent fifteen. But that was that sex scandal was the end of the golden dawn. You know that that much perversion, that much power about taking, especially young women, who were sort of promised this prince of magic if you just answer an advertising. I mean, have have things ever really changed? <laughs> um, that they really ruined lives over it and of course anybody respectable with the golden dawn that would have been yates and florence farr annie horniman they all went we're done
0: Mm -hmm. yeah gosh that's so tragic and of course you wouldn't want to be associated with that at all um and it's it's quite harsh on the people who who genuinely believed it and were interested in the kind of astrology and philosophy and uh like not raping people (laughs) yeah i think the
1: one person who was really her own person was florence farr Um, There's been some wonderful studies about her. She really was ahead of her time. I mean, she came into the Golden Dawn sort of a ruined woman already. So what did she have to lose? She was a divorced actress. And yet she was incredibly talented and smart. And she had her own ideas of where the Golden Dawn was going. She and Annie Horniman didn't always see eye to eye. But uh, she was not afraid to be the new woman, according to George Bernard Shaw, and sleep with people if she wanted to, and not sleep with people if she wanted to, which was
0: quite controversial. Right, absolutely. Okay, so if we can go off on kind of a weird tangent here. Yes. So uh, one of the articles that I've, I've read recently was about um, A.E. Waite's The House of Hidden Light, uh, which was this, this kind of text that was really kind of kept secret for a long time. There are only three original copies made, right? And there was some question for a long time about what he was actually talking about because it kind of parts of it kind of sounded like sex magic but maybe not in the way that alistair crowley was talking about um do you have any thoughts about this what what he was actually doing i think you're right on the money jessica
1: that he was trying to do his own version of alistair's sex magic Mm -hmm. Um, i think alistair wrote a play called moonbeams where he was trying to cast. Lawrence Farr's character as a person who willingly participates in these a magic uh rites and rituals but wait was very repressed you know he his mother never married his father um, but he she was American they came over and he brought up as a Catholic which was interesting because Pamela converted to Catholicism at the mm-hmm. end of her charro experience so I think that wait uh what was it he was known as hurry up and wait when you had to talk to him because (laughs) 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 he would not stop talking. So yes, I think all of them had ideas about what sex magic could be like, but they had to have a framing device where it was safe for them to espouse it.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I have to confess, I'm curious about some of these rituals, you know? So there was some suggestion that in in the House of Hidden Light, he's talking about potentially having sex with preternatural beings right and of course there were also there was some some mention about these rituals they would have where they would theoretically marry elemental spirits do we know anything about this stuff or is this just kind of rumor well I
1: think the w- person we know the most about this is from Maude Gown. Um she was a member of the Golden Dawn and at one point she she had lost a child And it was buried in a mausoleum in Paris. Mm -hmm. And she wanted a reincarnation of this child. And so she supposedly would astral travel with Yates. Yates was madly in love with her. And, you know, all his beautiful poetry, love poetry, came from his undying, unrequited love for her. Mm -hmm. But uh, Maude was especially known for her ability to astral travel and connect not only with Yates, but on on the astral level with God. Now, when she had this liaison in the mausoleum in Paris, she supposedly was able to contact Mm -hmm. the spirit of her former child to breathe life into this next baby girl. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of tragic in a way because she did not want to admit that this was her own child, so she said she adopted her and she was a niece or something. So it was not entirely on the up and up. But in terms of astral travel and and contacting spirits, um, Alan Bennett, who went on to found the the idea of Buddhism in England, was Alistair's roommate at a time. And he was one of the first people who taught Alistair a ritual, how to contact a god and and supposedly have communication. So they really, were they tripping on opium? Maybe. Uh, Did they have overactive imaginations and go into a trance and hallucinate? Could be. Or could Mm -hmm. they really contact some spirits. Uh, it, it depends on where you're coming from in terms of what you think spirits are. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, whether you believe in it or not, it's just interesting, you know, um, kind of like what they were thinking, where they were coming from, uh, what they were trying to do. And I'm glad that you mentioned opium. Cause I actually wanted to ask you about drug use. Now, when I was reading about, um, about weight in this book and everything, there was a period where he was experimenting with certain processes after the the death of his wife. Now, the way that he described it, he never says what kind of process it is. But when I was reading it, honestly, I thought it sounded just like heroin. You know, I mean, <laughs> well, as as Lou Reed tells us, heroin is, I should say. Uh, so, do we know what was he experimenting with anything like this, or or was this just kind of a spiritual high? Well, there
1: was some, there was some ideas that you did use a boost, you know, during your ceremonies. It wasn't just incense and candles that you did use some sort of drug of choice, whether it was heroin, opium, or uh, there was another narcotic escaping me right now. But also, uh, frankly, we also had a drinking problem. So um, I think he grappled with that as best that he could. But I'm not sure if the libation he was talking about was opium. I have a feeling it might've been because they loved this exotic idea that they were appropriating all these great groovy things from other cultures to get into the trance that you can't just do it simply, you know, with a nice glass of burgundy, you've got mm-hmm. to do it with something that's a little more out there that counterpunia would uh, approve of.
0: Yeah, definitely. And the way that he kind of described it, especially the, the types of smoke and everything. And I don't know, I, I immediately thought of drugs. But then I, my mind's like directly in the gutter. So <laughs> <laughs> what can you do? It's a good gutter, Jessica. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a good gutter. We're all there. They're we're all there together. Right. We're looking at the stars like Oscar, right? With Oscar. That's right. Oh my goodness. And of course we love Oscar. This is so interesting, um, isn't it? Yeah. I, it's so much
1: the same. And it's so weird to think that Alistair, you know, inspired cults.
0: And then, you know, he had people... You know, continue to kind of follow him like well into the '60s. He was like a like a pop culture figure in the '60s. You think of all these um, all these artists who used to write songs about it, right? You got um, what Black Sabbath was it, Mr. Crowley? <laughs> right. and, uh, and of course, you know, David Bowie has like Quicksand. He he directly references the Golden Dawn. Um, the the Rolling Stones. I mean, their entire back catalog. <laughs> you know, there, there are so many kind of references to it. You know, it, especially through the '60s. I think
1: that's a. It spoke to the time of Do What Thou Wilt. And that yeah. was his motto. And so, you know, the 60s were a time of, oh, no, we are not going to put up with the 1950s nonsense. And it was the same of Alistair coming out of the very restrictive ideas of the Victorian age. You know, you, you can't do what you want. And so I think the rock and rollers especially identified with that. Um, yeah. I, I think that there's a level of narcissism that's also attached with that. It's sort of at the expense of others do what they, they wilt, sometimes. Um, Pamela's motto with the Golden Dawn was much more traditionally Christian, a sort of do as you would to others as they would do to you. You know, she was much more encompassing what another person would feel. So these mm-hmm. mottos really showed how, how they felt about how they were going to approach magic with the Golden Dawn. Um, and Pamela was not necessarily known as someone who was having a romantic or sexual partner with the Golden Dawn. She was there to study, work with weight, I'm sure he drove her crazy, you know, with his, the way that he talked and just let me draw it, you know, just to roll cards. She drew, I think for eight months and got maybe 80 pounds, 40 pounds up front, 40 pounds at the end. It was a lot of work for very little money. The cards were not successful in her lifetime. So, and neither were Alistair's cards and uh, Alistair's cards had to be drawn by a woman too, but uh, there you go. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they, um. You still have the, the kind of basic deck, but they are formulated very differently. So like whereas you have um like the different suits in the the in Pamela's deck, in Alistair Crowley's deck, you actually have like they're named. You have like indolence and, and lust and so on and so forth. Um and they're they're very interesting, but they're harder to read in some ways, I think. I agree. I,
1: I have some friends, uh, Leslie Lowe, she's an expert at reading the thought deck. I, I can't relate to it myself. I've tried a couple of times. I've got them. I look at them. I think they're beautiful Art Deco cards um, with the symbols of the age of the new machines coming over and the ideas of reformatting what external uh, power looks like. Mm-hmm. But I I they don't touch my heart like Pamela's cards do.
0: Yeah. I mean I I really kind of agree. They're they're a bit Fritz Lang, they're a bit metropolis, I think. Exactly. Yeah. But they're they are yeah. cool. They're very interesting. But I mean go you, you could do you know, like the same questions and get completely different, completely different readings from there. It's almost like a different medium, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. It's a different language.
0: So although Pamela's deck became the most famous, it wasn't the first deck. So can you tell us a little bit more about the history of Tarot? Like what did it mean to the Golden Dawn?
1: Well, Tarot itself, it was officially started in 1444 in Italy. That's the Scanzi Forza deck, which is gorgeous. Um, It was done sort of as a wedding gift. Uh, for the Duke of Milan. It was done in gilt, it's gorgeous. It wasn't necessarily used for divination. It was sort of a trophy. Look, I got this artist to make these these cards and I'm the richest man in the world and I can do this. <laughs> and then from that, those cards became uh, sort of a game playing deck with Tarachi. So they were sort of like a guessing game so amongst the court members. And the cards sort of devolved from that going into France uh, the Marseille deck was probably the card that picked up some of the stereotypes of that. And it became more and more complex in terms of using it, especially for people, women, who couldn't read or write. This was a great way for them to own power to tell stories. And they started using it as introspection and possibly tell fortunes. And then from there, they moved into Paris with the and there was sort of a magical school of Tarot. And this is when magic, started becoming associated with the tarot deck. And from that time, from about the French Revolution onwards, they were sort of seen in certain circles as being conduits to magical spirits. And that's where the Golden Dawn said, you know, what? we need our own deck of magical tarot symbols, because we want to put uh, magical rituals together. And if we had a tarot deck, that would, you know, make our fortune. It's so ironic that the golden dawn fell apart the cards were never discovered really again until 1971 and now they're used day to day as a form of introspection and meditation um i i always try to encourage people not to look at tarot cards as fortune telling um because what's fortune telling right now in 15 minutes you'll want something else it'll be a, a different fortune telling so
0: yeah um yeah Gosh, that's so interesting. And of course, uh, around that time, sort of revolutionary France, you also get the Le Normand cards coming out. And that's uh, a little different from uh, Tarot. Of course, you read them in a different way.
1: Yes. I mean, I think they, those were put together in a way uh, that they can help you just make first associations. I think Jung also loved Pamela's deck because her drawing and her ability to prompt a response to an archetypal image was so effective and, and more so than almost any deck. because She puts her characters on the tarot cards almost on stage before you and asks you to interact with it in an almost non-personal way because the expressions on the cards are almost blank. So you superimpose the hangman's face, you superimpose the devil. So in, in some ways, it's a wonderful form of mirroring where you're at. That's why I think her illustrations are so successful even today.
0: Oh, definitely, and it's very intuitive. You know, you don't even necessarily need a book to understand them. Of course, it helps, but you can actually kind of look at them and say, "Well, what is this guy thinking? What do I think this means?" Absolutely, and you know, you can get totally caught
1: up with the details.
0: I I still love
1: to study and learn from other people what they're seeing in the deck, and sometimes I forget. There's a wonderful woman on online on Facebook named Diane Horton, and she just draws out the entire uh, Smith to Tarot card. And then just the other day, I went, "Oh my God!" She pointed out the ibis. On the the temperance card, I totally didn't talk that there was an Egyptian bird sitting in the back of there. So it's wonderful to go back and and uh, have a refresher about what all these little lovely nuggets and Easter eggs are in these tarot cards.
0: That's really nice. I like that. So, um, of course, now it, it almost feels like we're going through kind of like a second satanic panic, right? Of course, like the first one was in the 80s where, uh, you know, you have like a lot of, you know, very narrow minded people kind of thinking things like uh, like Tarot and things like metal and um, God knows what else are, are kind of related to like devil worship. Right. And uh, I feel like like this kind of history, this kind of spiritualism, the golden dawn, a lot of people tend to think that, that those kind of go together, you know, like it's kind of like against Christianity, but most of the members would actually consider themselves Christian. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Or at least
1: uh, aspiring to the tenets of what a good Christian behaves like. I I think the card that struck terror into everyone was the devil card. because there's a naked man and a naked woman, and there's a chain and there's a devil with horns. It looks real kinky. Yeah. Yeah. And so you think (laughs) devil worship, these devil worshiping cards and no matter sometimes how I try to assure people, they're, they're going back to talk about what our fears of being abound uh, by bad beliefs. You see that the people are unchained. You see all these symbols that are saying that the devil is our own choice. The devil is of our own making. But it's funny how one card associated with nudity, especially for women and men, can bring up the most paranoid ideas about being saved from evil.
0: Yeah. And it just makes you, uh, it makes you so nervous, but it's like, there's nothing wrong with him. He's just a Capricorn. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd say Scorpio sometimes too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Gosh, that's so (laughs) interesting. And then of course you mentioned that uh, Pamela later converted to Catholicism and she moved to Cornwall. So what happened to her after she finished the deck?
1: I think she was a little disappointed actually uh the the theater crowd started to disperse when the Lysing theater went bankrupt the golden dawn headed for the hills after Madame Horace and her son husband and I think she felt very lonely so Mm -hmm. her uncle Teddy gave her some money and she decided she was going to buy a great big house on near this near the ocean and have it open for friends there was you know, some speculation she wanted to open an Airbnb type thing for priests, but I think that that's just conjecture. But she was a devoted Catholic. I mean, she loved the ritual of you know stand up, sit down, incense, turn around, Latin. So she became a uh, kind of a squeaky wheel in the neighborhood, and she really wanted to bring the chapel on her estate to light with people coming to these Catholic mass. Um, She was sort of a pain in the ass, actually, to the local priests and things and after a while they went oh we need to shut her down she's driving us crazy she also (laughs) was not cool in that she nailed a crucifix on her front door where catholics in england at that time in right before world war ii still not cool still not cool to be a catholic so they had to sort of you know rope her the right way to do it the the fireplace that was in her chapel is has actually just recently been sold and is in treadwell's bookstore in london
0: wow oh my goodness yeah. That was so cool. So where she was living in Cornwall, that's quite near uh, Bude, isn't it? I think I read. Well, it's down, it's down
1: the coast. It's in the southern coast. When after she left Bude, she and her housekeeper companion, Nora Lake, they moved to Exeter for a little bit. Mm-hmm. World War II was still causing crazy stuff in England, and then eventually she retired in Bude. But her finances totally ran out. She was never good with money, mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately, she died broke and in an unmarked grave. So it was kind of a a tragic way for her never to know that she would be this world-venerated creator of tarot cards and that her artwork would be in art museums all over the world is kind of heartbreaking. But I'm I'm hoping that people will know her name is on the tarot deck. It's Smith-Waite. We have all these introspectives where we celebrate her artwork. And um, I'm very excited to keep talking about Pamela Coleman-Smith, the mother of the modern day tarot deck.
0: Yes, of course. Oh my goodness. And for somebody so influential as well, what a tragedy. But, you know, as you say, we can remember her. And I wanted to ask you as well, you have started a petition to commemorate Pamela's childhood home in London with a blue plaque. So living in the UK, I used to see these blue plaques everywhere, uh, but not everybody is familiar with the concept. So what is the significant of these blue heritage plaques?
1: Well, it's really interesting. They started in 1866 and it was a way to acknowledge people who came to some prominence in English culture, because oftentimes if you weren't a a member of royalty or if you didn't have a title, you could make incredible contributions to English society and it was never accredited because you didn't have a title. So they started this movement on your birthplace or where you had lived to put these blue heritage plaques. And when I lived in London for a little bit too, and I would walk around and see these plaques, and one time I saw a plaque that said, so-and-so watched the first TV broadcast at this house. And I went, wait a minute, what? (laughs) That person has a plaque, but Pamela Coleman Smith doesn't have a plaque. Mm -hmm. So I started putting together uh, an application uh, about three years ago and I applied and they were very receptive to it. But when they got to the final last part of it, they said, you know, someone did already apply and you can only do it every 10 years. But if you come back, in 2023, with the correct application, we will certainly consider it. And I said, what if I show that people really love Pamela and I get a petition going? And they went, okay, American woman who doesn't live here. Sure, you can do that. <laughs> On my website, I started a petition. Um, it closed a couple of weeks ago when I turned in the application. We had about 700 people sign up for it. And um, I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to be seen as the pushy American when you need to recognize this person. But I, I think it might help. Um, we're certainly planning on a pixie par- dance party in the streets if they do decide to honor any of the eight places she lived around London when she lived in that area. So I'm crossing my fingers that the heritage people will bequeath a plaque to Pamela's birthplace.
0: That's really fun. I really hope that that they do. Well, you'll have to let us know and uh, we'll keep everyone posted on the show We'll keep you updated. Absolutely. Oh, that's so great. So this is so interesting. So where can we find more about you and your work? I know you've got some articles online I've been reading.
1: Well, in March, March 27th, with Morbid Anatomy, that's an online uh, teaching school, I'm going to have a free presentation of Pamela Coleman-Smith's artwork. So if you would like to see her artwork outside of her tarot cards, of which there are many gorgeous pieces, um, you can register at Morbid Anatomy. Just look up Susan Wong's Morbid Anatomy and you can register for free. Um, I'll be doing some other talks about uh, Pamela's cards uh, in the next couple of weeks with the Historical Novel Society in May, and my book, the first book in the series about Pamela, comes out May 2nd. Um, I do want to stress that this is not uh, uh, an exact telling of Pamela's life; it is alternate history because I'm writing about magic, and we don't really know what the magic was or what Pamela's special gifts are. So I do want to say it's. Magic realism, it's alternate uh, history, it's paranormal. But I'm I'm living through these books. What Pamela must have experienced in my mind, being the talented psychic and and creating a deck and coming up against Alistair Crowley, who also did not want her to succeed in terms of being uh, tarot artist.
0: Wow, fantastic! And it's such a great book too. It's it's very imaginative. It's just beautifully written. I'm sure everyone will enjoy it. Thank you, Jessica. Of course. Well, thank you so much for being here today. We're so glad to have you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Once again, I'd like to thank Susan Wands for stopping by the show. Her new book, Magician and Fool, is out on May 2nd, and you can find more about Susan and her work at magicianandfool.com. I'd also like to thank our fantastic patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeier, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. This week, we're also doing a fun sticker giveaway on our Instagram. If you'd like to win one of our new Monstrous Women vinyl stickers, you have until the end of the day to comment. No rush or anything. (laughs) You can find us on Instagram at History. If you would like to support the show, you can subscribe to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash DirtySexyHistory. Or you can follow us on social media. Or rate, review, and subscribe if you really want to make my day. As always, we'll post photos from today's show on our Instagram, along with that giveaway and pictures of our new merch. You can also find us on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. Have a great week, guys. See you next time.